Bartleby the Scrivener, A Story of Wall Street I am a rather elderly man. The nature of my avocations for the last 30 years has brought me into more than ordinary contact with what would seem an interesting and somewhat singular set of men, of whom as yet nothing that I know of has ever been written. I mean the law copyists or scriveners. I've known very many of them, professionally and privately, and if I pleased, could relate diverse histories at which good-natured gentlemen might smile and sentimental souls might weep. But I waive the biographies of all other scriveners for a few passages in the life of Bartleby, who was a scrivener of the strangest I ever saw or heard of. While of other law copyists I might write the complete life, of Bartleby nothing of that sort can be done. I believe that no materials exist for a full and satisfactory biography of this man. It is an irreparable loss to literature. Bartleby was one of those beings of whom nothing is ascertainable except from the original sources, and in his case those are very small. What my own astonished eyes saw of Bartleby, that is all I know of him, except, indeed, one vague report which will appear in the sequel. Here the narrator introduces his law firm, which does business involving rich men's bonds, mortgages, and title deeds. He also introduces his employees, the elderly Turkey, who is good-tempered in the morning and ill-tempered in the afternoon, and the young man Nippers, whose daily tempers followed the opposite schedule. He then introduces Ginger Nut, a 12-year-old errand boy also employed by the narrator's firm. Now, my original business, that of a conveyancer and title hunter and drawer of recondite documents of all sorts, was considerably increased by receiving the master's office. There was now great work for scriveners. Not only must I push the clerks already with me, but I must have additional help. In answer to my advertisement, a motionless young man one morning stood upon my office threshold, the door being open, for it was summer. I can see that figure now. Pallidly neat, pitiably respectable, incurably forlorn. It was Bartleby. After a few words touching his qualifications, I engaged him, glad to have among my corps of copyists a man of so singularly sedate an aspect, which I thought might operate beneficially upon the flighty temper of Turkey and the fiery one of Nippers. I should have stated before that ground glass folding doors divided my premises into two parts one of which was occupied by my scriveners, the other by myself. According to my humor, I threw open these doors, or closed them. I resolved to assign Bartleby a corner by the folding doors, but on my side of them, so as to have this quiet man within easy call, in case any trifling thing was to be done. I placed his desk close up to a small side window in part of the room, a window which originally had afforded a lateral view of certain grimy backyards and bricks, but which owing to subsequent erections, commanded at present no view at all, though it gave some light. Within three feet of the panes was a wall, and the light came down from far above, between two lofty buildings, as from a very small opening in a dome. Still further to a satisfactory arrangement, I procured a high green folding screen, which might entirely isolate Bartleby from my sight, though not remove him from my voice, and thus, in a manner, privacy and society were conjoined. At first, Bartleby did an extraordinary quantity of writing. As if long famishing for something to copy, he seemed to gorge himself on my documents. There was no pause for digestion. He ran a day and night line, copying by sunlight and by candlelight. 
I should have been quite delighted with his application, had he been cheerfully industrious, but he wrote on silently, palely, mechanically. It is, of course, an indispensable part of a scrivener's business to verify the accuracy of his copy, word by word. Where there are two or more scriveners in an office, they assist each other in this examination, one reading from the copy, the other holding the original. It is a very dull, wearisome, and lethargic affair. I can readily imagine that to some sanguine temperaments, it would be altogether intolerable. For example, I cannot credit that the meddlesome poet Byron would have contentedly sat down with Bartleby to examine a law document of, say, 500 pages, closely written in a crimpy hand. Now and then, in the haste of business, it had been my habit to assist in comparing some brief document myself, calling turkey or nippers for this purpose. One object I had in placing Bartleby so handy to me behind the screen was to avail myself of his services on such trivial occasions. It was on the third day, I think, of his being with me, and before any necessity had arisen for having his own writing examined, that, being much hurried to complete a small affair I had in hand, I abruptly called to Bartleby. In my haste and natural expectancy of instant compliance, I sat with my head bent over the original on my desk, and my right hand sideways, and somewhat nervously extended with the copy, so that immediately upon emerging from his retreat, Bartleby might snatch it and proceed to business without the least delay. In this very attitude did I sit when I called to him, rapidly stating what it was I wanted him to do, namely to examine a small paper with me. Imagine my surprise, nay, my consternation, when without moving from his privacy, Bartleby in a singularly mild, firm voice replied, I would prefer not to. I sat a while in perfect silence, rallying my stunned faculties. Immediately it occurred to me that my ears had deceived me, or Bartleby had entirely misunderstood my meaning. I repeated my request in the clearest tone I could assume, but in quite as clear a one came the previous reply. I would prefer not to. Prefer not to, echoed I, rising in high excitement and crossing the room with a stride. What do you mean? Are you moonstruck? I want you to help me compare this sheet here. Take it, and I thrust it towards him. I would prefer not to, said he. I looked at him steadfastly. His face was leanly composed, his gray eye dimly calm. Not a wrinkle of agitation rippled him. Had there been the least uneasiness, anger, impatience, or impertinence in his manner, in other words, had there been anything ordinarily human about him, doubtless I should have violently dismissed him from the premises. But as it was, I should have as soon thought of turning my pale plaster of Paris bust of Cicero out of doors. I stood gazing at him a while as he went on with his own writing, and then reseated myself at my desk. This is very strange, thought I. What had one best do? But my business hurried me. I concluded to forget the matter for the present, reserving it for my future leisure. So calling nippers from the other room, the paper was speedily examined. A few days after this, Bartleby concluded four lengthy documents, being quadruplicates of a week's testimony taken before me in my high court of chancery. It became necessary to examine them. It was an important suit, and great accuracy was imperative. Having all things arranged, I called turkey, nippers, and ginger nut from the next room, meaning to place the four copies in the hands of my four clerks while I should read from the original. Accordingly, turkey, nippers, and ginger nut had taken their seats in a row, each with his document in hand, when I called to Bartleby to join this interesting group. Bartleby, quick, I am waiting, 
I heard a slow scrape of his chair legs on the uncarpeted floor, and soon he appeared standing at the entrance of his hermitage. What is wanted? said he mildly. The copies, the copies, said I hurriedly. We are going to examine them. There, and I held towards him the fourth quadruplicate. I would prefer not to, he said, and gently disappeared behind the screen. For a few moments I was turned into a pillar of salt, standing at the head of my seated column of clerks. Recovering myself, I advanced towards the screen and demanded the reason for such extraordinary conduct. Why do you refuse? I would prefer not to. With any other man, I should have flown outright into a dreadful passion, scorned all further words, and thrust him ignominiously from my presence. But there was something about Bartleby that not only strangely disarmed me, but in a wonderful manner touched and disconcerted me. I began to reason with him. These are your own copies we are about to examine. It is labor-saving to you, because one examination will answer for your four papers. It is common usage. Every copyist is bound to help examine his copy. Is it not so? Will you not speak? Answer! I prefer not to, he replied in a flute-like tone. It seemed to me that while I had been addressing him, he carefully resolved every statement that I made, fully comprehended the meaning, could not gainsay the irresistible conclusions, but at the same time, some paramount consideration prevailed with him to reply as he did. You are decided, then, not to comply with my request, a request made according to common usage and common sense? He briefly gave me to understand that on that point my judgment was sound. Yes, his decision was irreversible. It is not seldom the case that when a man is browbeaten in some unprecedented and violently unreasonable way, he begins to stagger in his own plainest faith. He begins, as it were, vaguely to surmise that, wonderful as it may be, all the justice and all the reason is on the other side. Accordingly, if any disinterested persons are present, he turns to them for some reinforcement for his own faltering mind. Turkey, said I, what do you think of this? Am I not right? With submission, sir, said Turkey with his blandest tone. I think that you are. Nippers, said I, what do you think of it? I think I should kick him out of the office. The reader of nice perceptions will here perceive that, it being morning, Turkey's answer is couched in polite and tranquil terms, but Nippers replies in ill-tempered ones. Or, to repeat a previous sentence, Nippers' ugly mood was on duty and Turkey's off. Ginger Nut, said I, willing to enlist the smallest suffrage in my behalf. What do you think of it? I think, sir, he's a little loony, replied Ginger Nut with a grin. You hear what they say, said I, turning towards the screen. Come forth and do your duty. But he vouchsafed no reply. I pondered a moment in sore perplexity, but once more business hurried me. I determined again to postpone the consideration of this dilemma to my future leisure. With a little trouble we made out to examine the papers without Bartleby, though at every page or two, Turkey deferentially dropped his opinion that this proceeding was quite out of the common, while Nippers, twitching in his chair with a dyspeptic nervousness, ground out between his set teeth occasional hissing maledictions against the stubborn oaf behind the screen. And for his, Nippers' part, this was the first and the last time he would do another man's business without pay. Meanwhile, Bartleby sat in his hermitage, oblivious to everything but his own peculiar business there. Some days passed, the scrivener being employed upon another lengthy work, his late remarkable conduct led me to regard his ways narrowly. 
I observed that he never went to dinner, indeed that he never went anywhere. As yet, I had never of my personal knowledge known him to be outside of my office. He was a perpetual sentry in the corner. At about 11 o'clock, though, in the morning, I noticed that Ginger Nut would advance toward the opening in Bartleby's screen, as if silently beckoned thither by a gesture invisible to me where I sat. The boy would then leave the office jingling a few pence, and reappear with a handful of ginger nuts which he delivered in the hermitage, receiving two of the cakes for his trouble. He lives then on ginger nuts, thought I. Never eats a dinner, properly speaking. He must be a vegetarian then. But no, he never eats even vegetables. He eats nothing but ginger nuts. My mind then ran on in reveries concerning the probable effects upon the human constitution of living entirely on ginger nuts. Ginger nuts are so called because they contain ginger as one of their peculiar constituents, and the final flavoring one. Now what was ginger? A hot, spicy thing. Was Bartleby hot and spicy? Not at all. Ginger then had no effect upon Bartleby. Probably he preferred it should have none. Nothing so aggravates an earnest person as a passive resistance. If the individual so resisted be of a not inhumane temper, and the resisting one perfectly harmless in his passivity, then, in the better moods of the former, he will endeavor charitably to construe to his imagination what proves impossible to be solved by his judgment. Even so, for the most part, I regarded Bartleby and his ways. Poor fellow, thought I, he means no mischief. It is plain he intends no insolence. His aspect sufficiently evinces that his eccentricities are involuntary. He is useful to me. I can get along with him. If I turn him away, the chances are he will fall in with some less indulgent employer, and then he will be rudely treated, and perhaps driven forth miserably to starve. Yes, here I can cheaply purchase a delicious self-approval. To befriend Bartleby, to humor him in his strange willfulness, will cost me little or nothing, while I lay up in my soul what will eventually prove a sweet morsel for my conscience. But this mood was not invariable with me. The passiveness of Bartleby sometimes irritated me. I felt strangely goaded on to encounter him in new opposition, to elicit some angry spark from him answerable to my own. But indeed, I might as well have essayed to strike fire with my knuckles against a bit of Windsor soap. But one afternoon, the evil impulse in me mastered me, and the following little scene ensued. Bartleby, said I, when those papers are all copied, I will compare them with you. I would prefer not to. How? Surely you do not mean to persist in that mulish vagary. No answer. I threw open the folding doors nearby, and turning upon Turkey and Nippers, exclaimed in an excited manner, He says, a second time, he won't examine his papers. What do you think of it, Turkey? It was afternoon, be it remembered. Turkey sat glowing like a brass boiler, his bald head steaming, his hands reeling among his blotted papers. Think of it, roared Turkey. I think I'll just step behind his screen and black his eyes for him. So saying, Turkey rose to his feet and threw his arms into a pugilistic position. He was hurrying away to make good his promise when I detained him, alarmed at the effect of incautiously rousing Turkey's combativeness after dinner. Sit down, Turkey, said I, and hear what Nippers has to say. What do you think of it, Nippers? Would I not be justified in immediately dismissing Bartleby? Excuse me, that, that is for you to decide, sir. I think his conduct quite unusual and indeed unjust as regards Turkey and myself, but it may only be a passing whim. Ah, exclaimed I, you have strangely changed your mind then. You speak very gently of him now. 
All beer, cried Turkey. Gentleness is effects of beer. Nippers and I dine together today. You see how gentle I am. Shall I go and black his eyes? You refer to Bartleby, I suppose. No, not today, Turkey, I replied. Pray, put up your fists. I closed the doors and again advanced towards Bartleby. I felt additional incentives tempting me to my fate. I burned to be rebelled against again. I remembered that Bartleby never left the office. Bartleby, said I, Ginger Nut is away. Just step round to the post office, won't you? It was but a three-minute walk. And see if there is anything for me. I would prefer not to. You will not? I prefer not. I staggered to my desk and sat there in a deep study. My blind inveteracy returned. Was there any other thing in which I could procure myself to be ignominiously repulsed by this lean, penniless white? My hired clerk? What added thing is there, perfectly reasonable, that he will be sure to refuse to do? Bartleby. No answer. Bartleby, in a louder tone. No answer. Bartleby, I roared. Like a very ghost, agreeably to the laws of magical invocation, at the third summons, he appeared at the entrance of his hermitage. Go to the next room and tell Nippers to come to me. I prefer not to, he respectfully and slowly said, and mildly disappeared. Very good, Bartleby, said I, in a quiet, sort of serenely severe, self-possessed tone, intimating the unalterable purpose of some terrible retribution very close at hand. At the moment, I half intended something of the kind. But upon the whole, as it was drawing towards my dinner hour, I thought it best to put on my hat and walk home for the day, suffering much from perplexity and distress of mind. Shall I acknowledge it? The conclusion of this whole business was that it soon became a fixed fact of my chambers that a pale young scrivener by the name of Bartleby, and a desk there, that he copied for me at the usual rate of four cents a folio, 100 words, but he was permanently exempt from examining the work done by him, that duty being transferred to Turkey and Nippers, one of compliment doubtless to their superior acuteness. Moreover, said Bartleby was never on any account to be dispatched on the most trivial errand of any sort, and that even if entreated to take upon him such a matter, it was generally understood that he would prefer not to. In other words, that he would refuse point blank. As days passed on, I became considerably reconciled to Bartleby. His steadiness, his freedom from all dissipation, his incessant industry, except when he chose to throw himself into a standing reverie behind his screen, his great stillness, his unalterableness of demeanor under all circumstances, made him a valuable acquisition. One prime thing was this. He was always there. First in the morning, continually through the day, and the last at night. I had a singular confidence in his honesty. I felt my most precious papers perfectly safe in his hands. Sometimes, to be sure, I could not, for the very soul of me, avoid falling into sudden spasmodic passions with him. For it was exceeding difficult to bear in mind all the time those strange peculiarities, privileges, and unheard-of exemptions, forming the tacit stipulations on Bartleby's part under which he remained in my office. Now and then, in the eagerness of dispatching pressing business, I would inadvertently summon Bartleby, in a short, rapid tone, to put his finger, say, on the incipient tie of a bit of red tape with which I was about compressing some papers. Of course, from behind the screen, the usual answer, I prefer not to, was sure to come. 
And then, how could a human creature with the common infirmities of our nature refrain from bitterly exclaiming upon such perverseness, such unreasonableness? However, every added repulse of this sort which I received only tended to lessen the probability of my repeating the inadvertence. The narrator goes to his office on Sunday morning only to find that Bartleby is still residing there. He has not left. He discovers that Bartleby has been living in the office, living off a bare and meager subsistence of ginger nuts and cheese, sleeping under his desk. As his curiosity about Bartleby turns to fear and disgust, he resolves that the next day he will pay Bartleby what he is owed and fire him. The next morning came. Bartleby, said I, gently calling to him behind his screen. No reply. Bartleby, said I, in a still gentler tone. Come here. I am not going to ask you to do anything you would prefer not to. I simply wish to speak to you. Upon this, he noiselessly slid into view. Will you tell me, Bartleby, where you were born? I would prefer not to. Will you tell me anything about yourself? I would prefer not to. But what reasonable objection can you have to speak to me? I feel friendly towards you. He did not look at me while I spoke, but kept his glance fixed upon my bust of Cicero, which, as I then sat, was directly behind me, some six inches above my head. What is your answer, Bartleby? said I, after waiting a considerable time for a reply, during which his countenance remained immovable, only there was the faintest conceivable tremor of the white attenuated mouth. At present, I prefer to give no answer, he said, and retired into his hermitage. It was rather weak in me, I confess, but his manner on this occasion nettled me. Not only did there seem to lurk in it a certain calm disdain, but his perverseness seemed ungrateful, considering the undeniable good usage and indulgence he had received from me. Again I sat ruminating what I should do. Mortified as I was at his behavior, and resolved as I had been to dismiss him when I entered my offices, nevertheless I strangely felt something superstitious knocking at my heart, and forbidding me to carry out my purpose and denouncing me for a villain if I dared to breathe one bitter word against this forlornest of mankind. At last, familiarly drawing my chair behind his screen, I sat down and said, Bartleby, never mind then about revealing your history, but let me entreat you, as a friend, to comply as far as may be with the usages of this office. Say now you will help to examine papers tomorrow or the next day. In short, Say now that in a day or two you will begin to be a little reasonable. Say so, Bartleby. At present, I would prefer not to be a little reasonable, was his mildly cadaverous reply. Just then the folding doors opened and Nippers approached. He seemed suffering from an unusually bad night's rest, induced by severer indigestion than common. He overheard those final words of Bartleby. Prefer not, eh? gritted Nippers. I'd prefer him, if I were you, sir, addressing me. I'd prefer him. I'd give him preferences, the stubborn mule. What is it, sir, pray, that he prefers not to do now? Bartleby moved not a limb. Mr. Nippers, said I, I'd prefer that you would withdraw for the present. Somehow of late I had got into the way of involuntarily using this word prefer upon all sorts of not exactly suitable occasions and I trembled to think that my contact with the Scrivener had already and seriously affected me in a mental way. And what further and deeper aberration might it not yet produce? 
This apprehension had not been without efficacy in determining me to summary means. As Nippers, looking very sour and sulky, was departing, Turkey blandly and deferentially approached. With submission, sir, said he. Yesterday I was thinking about Bartleby here, and I think that if he would but prefer to take a quart of good ale every day, it would do much towards mending him and enabling him to assist in examining his papers. So you have got the word too, said I, slightly excited. Uh, with submissions, what word, sir? Asked Turkey, respectfully crowding himself into the contracted space behind the screen, and by so doing, making me jostle the scrivener. Uh, w- what word, sir? I would prefer to be left alone here, said Bartleby, as if offended at being mobbed in his privacy. That's the word, Turkey, said I. That's it. Oh, prefer. Oh, yes. Queer word. I never use it myself. But, uh, sir, as I was saying, if he would but prefer... Turkey, interrupted I, you will please withdraw. Oh, certainly, sir, if you prefer that I should. As he opened the folding door to retire, Nippers at his desk caught a glimpse of me and asked whether I would prefer to have a certain paper copied on blue paper or white. He did not in the least roguishly accent the word prefer. It was plain that it involuntarily rolled from his tongue. I thought to myself, surely I must get rid of a demented man who already has in some degree turned the tongues, if not the heads, of myself and clerks, but I thought it prudent not to break the dismission at once. The next day I noticed that Bartleby did nothing but stand at his window in his dead wall reverie. Upon asking him why he did not write, he said that he had decided upon doing no more writing. Why? How now? What next? exclaimed I. Do no more writing? No more. And what is the reason? Do you not see the reason for yourself? He indifferently replied. I looked steadfastly at him and perceived that his eyes looked dull and glazed. Instantly it occurred to me that his unexampled diligence in copying by his dim window for the first few weeks of his stay with me might have temporarily impaired his vision. I was touched. I said something in condolence with him. I hinted that of course he did wisely in abstaining from writing for a while, and urged him to embrace that opportunity of taking wholesome exercise in the open air. This, however, he did not do. A few days after this, my other clerks being absent, and being in a great hurry to dispatch certain letters by the mail, I thought that, having nothing else earthly to do, Bartleby would surely be less inflexible than usual and carry these letters to the post office. But he blankly declined. So, much to my inconvenience, I went myself. Still added days went by. Whether Bartleby's eyes improved or not, I could not say. To all appearance, I thought they did. But when I asked him if they did, he vouchsafed no answer. At all events, he would do no copying. At last, in reply to my urgings, he informed me that he had permanently given up copying. What? exclaimed I. Suppose your eyes should get entirely well, better than ever before. Would you not copy then? I have given up copying. He answered and slid aside. He remained as ever a fixture in my chamber. Nay, if that were possible, he became still more of a fixture than before. What was to be done? He would do nothing in the office. Why should he stay there? In plain fact, he had now become a millstone to me, not only useless as a necklace, but afflictive to bear. 
yet I was sorry for him. I speak less than truth when I say that, on his own account, he occasioned me uneasiness. If he would but have named a single relative or friend, I would instantly have written, and urged their taking the poor fellow away to some convenient retreat. But he seemed alone, absolutely alone in the universe, a bit of wreck in the mid-Atlantic. At length, necessities connected with my business tyrannized over all other considerations. Decently as I could, I told Bartleby that in six days' time he must unconditionally leave the office. I warned him to take measures in the interval for procuring some other abode. I offered to assist him in this endeavor if he himself would but take the first step towards a removal. And when you finally quit me, Bartleby, added I, I shall see that you go not away entirely unprovided. Six days from this hour, remember. At the expiration of that period, I peeped behind the screen, and lo, Bartleby was there. I buttoned up my coat, balanced myself, advanced slowly towards him, touched his shoulder, and said, The time has come. You must quit this place. I am sorry for you. Here is money, but you must go. I would prefer not to, he replied, with his back still towards me. You must. He remained silent. Now I had an unbounded confidence in this man's common honesty. He had frequently restored to me sixpences and shillings carelessly dropped upon the floor, for I am apt to be very reckless in such shirt-button affairs. The proceeding then which followed will not be deemed extraordinary. Bartleby, said I, I owe you twelve dollars on account. Here are thirty-two. The odd twenty are yours. Will you take it? And I handed the bills towards him. But he made no motion. I will leave them here then, putting them under a weight on the table. Then taking my hat and cane and going to the door, I tranquilly turned and added, After you have removed your things from these offices, Bartleby, you will of course lock the door, since everyone is now gone for the day but you. And if you please, slip your key underneath the mat, so that I may have it in the morning. I shall not see you again, so goodbye to you. If hereafter in your new place of abode I can be of any service to you, do not fail to advise me by letter. Goodbye, Bartleby, and fare you well. But he answered not a word. Like the last column of some ruined temple, he remained standing mute and solitary in the middle of the otherwise deserted room. The narrator then explains how he went home feeling smugly that he had handled the situation perfectly, such that Bartleby would certainly be gone by the time the narrator returned the next day. But when he awoke the next morning, his confidence in this probability was greatly reduced. As I had intended, I was earlier than usual at my office door. I stood listening for a moment. All was still. He must be gone. I tried the knob. The door was locked. Yes, my procedure had worked to a charm. He indeed must be vanished. Yet a certain melancholy mixed with this. I was almost sorry for my brilliant success. I was fumbling under the doormat for the key, which Bartleby was to have left there for me, when accidentally my knee knocked against a panel, producing a summoning sound, and in response a voice came to me from within. Not yet, I am occupied. It was Bartleby. I was thunderstruck. For an instant I stood like the man who, pipe in mouth, was killed one cloudless afternoon long ago in Virginia by a summer lightning. At his own warm open window he was killed, and remained leaning out there upon the dreamy afternoon till someone touched him when he fell. Not gone, I murmured at last. But again, obeying that wondrous ascendancy which the inscrutable scrivener had over me, 
and from which ascendancy, for all my chafing, I could not completely escape, I slowly went downstairs and out into the street, and while walking round the block, considered what I should next do in this unheard of perplexity. Turn the man out by an actual thrusting I could not. To drive him away by calling him hard names would not do. Calling in the police was an unpleasant idea. And yet, permit him to enjoy his cadaverous triumph over me? This too I could not think of. What was to be done? Or, if nothing could be done, was there anything further that I could assume in the matter? Yes, as before, I had prospectively assumed that Bartleby would depart, so now I might retrospectively assume that departed he was. In the legitimate carrying out of this assumption, I might enter my office in a great hurry, and pretending not to see Bartleby at all, walk straight against him as if he were heir. Such a proceeding would, in a singular degree, have the appearance of a home thrust. It was hardly possible that Bartleby could withstand such an application of the doctrine of assumptions. But upon second thoughts, the success of the plan seemed rather dubious. I resolved to argue the matter over with him again. Bartleby, said I, entering the office with a quietly severe expression, I am seriously displeased. I am pained, Bartleby. I had thought better of you. I had imagined you of such a gentlemanly organization that in any delicate dilemma a slight hint would have sufficed, in short, an assumption. But it appears I am deceived. Why? I added, unaffectedly starting, you have not even touched that money yet, pointing to it, just where I had left it the evening previous. He answered nothing. Will you or will you not quit me? I now demanded in a sudden passion, advancing close to him. I would prefer not to quit you, he replied, gently emphasizing the not. What earthly right have you to stay here? Do you pay any rent? Do you pay my taxes? Or is this property yours? He answered nothing. Are you ready to go on and write now? Are your eyes recovered? Could you copy a small paper for me this morning? Or help examine a few lines? Or step round to the post office? In a word, will you do anything at all to give a coloring to your refusal to depart the premises? He silently retired into his hermitage. The narrator next imagines the possibility of killing Bartleby while they are alone together in the office, but he quickly realizes the evil of this prospect and rids it from his mind. The narrator begins to treat accepting Bartleby's inexplicable presence in his office as a kind of spiritual challenge and embraces it. This goes on for some time, but soon the irritation and gossip of his professional colleagues becomes too much, and the narrator decides finally that he must be rid of Bartleby. Ere revolving any complicated project, however, adapted to this end, I first simply suggested to Bartleby the propriety of his permanent departure. In a calm and serious tone, I commended the idea to his careful and mature consideration. But having taken three days to meditate upon it, he apprised me that his original determination remained the same. In short, that he still preferred to abide with me. What shall I do? I now said to myself buttoning up my coat to the last button. What shall I do? What ought I do? What does conscience say I should do with this man, or rather ghost? Rid myself of him, I must. Go, he shall. But how? You will not thrust him, the poor, pale, passive mortal. You will not thrust such a helpless creature out your door? You will not dishonor yourself by such cruelty? No, I will not. I cannot do that. Rather would I let him live and die here, and then mason up his remains in the wall. 
What then will you do? For all your coaxing, he will not budge. Bribes he leaves under your own paperweight on your table. In short, it is quite plain that he prefers to cling to you. Then something severe, something unusual must be done. What? Surely you will not have him collared by a constable and commit his innocent pallor to the common jail. And upon what ground could you procure such a thing to be done? A vagrant, is he? What? He a vagrant, a wanderer who refuses to budge? It is because he will not be a vagrant, then, that you seek to count him as a vagrant. That is too absurd. No visible means of support. There I have him. Wrong again. For indubitably he does support himself, and that is the only unanswerable proof that any man can show of his possessing the means so to do. No more, then. Since he will not quit me, I must quit him. I will change my offices. I will move elsewhere, and give him fair notice that if I find him on my new premises, I will then proceed against him as a common trespasser. Acting accordingly, next day I thus addressed him. I find these chambers too far from the city hall. The air is unwholesome. In a word, I propose to remove my offices next week and shall no longer require your services. I tell you this now, in order that you may seek another place. He made no reply, and nothing more was said. On the appointed day, I engaged carts and men, proceeded to my chambers, and having but little furniture, everything was removed in a few hours. Throughout, the scrivener remained standing behind the screen, which I directed to be removed the last thing. It was withdrawn, and being folded up like a huge folio, left him the motionless occupant of a naked room. I stood in the entry watching him a moment, while something from within me upbraided me. I re-entered with my hand in my pocket, and and my heart in my mouth. Goodbye, Bartleby. I am going. Goodbye, and God some way bless you, and take that, slipping something in his hand. But it dropped upon the floor, and then, strange to say, I tore myself from him whom I had so longed to be rid of. Established in my new quarters, for a day or two I kept the door locked, and started at every footfall in the passages. When I returned to my rooms after any little absence, I would pause at the threshold for an instant, and attentively listen, ere applying my key. But these fears were needless. Bartleby never came nigh me. I thought all was going well, when a perturbed-looking stranger visited me, inquiring whether I was the person who had recently occupied rooms at number Wall Street. Full of forebodings, I replied that I was. Then, sir said the stranger, who proved a lawyer. You are responsible for the man you left there. He refuses to do any copying. He refuses to do any thing. He says he prefers not to, and he refuses to quit the premises. I am very sorry, sir, said I, with assumed tranquility but an inward tremor. But really, the man you allude to is nothing to me. He is no relation or apprentice of mine that you should hold me responsible for him. In mercy's name, who is he? I certainly cannot inform you. I know nothing about him. Formerly I employed him as a copyist, but he has done nothing for me now for some time past. I shall settle him then. Good morning, sir. Several days passed and I heard nothing more. And though I often felt a charitable prompting to call at the place and see poor Bartleby, yet a certain squeamishness of I know not what withheld me. All is over with him by this time, thought I at last when through another week no further intelligence reached me. But coming to my room the day after, I found several persons waiting at my door in a high state of nervous excitement. 
That's the man. Here he comes, cried the foremost one, whom I recognized as the lawyer who had previously called upon me alone. You must take him away, sir, at once, cried a portly person among them, advancing upon me and whom I knew to be the landlord of number Wall Street. These gentlemen, my tenants, cannot stand it any longer. Mr. B, pointing to the lawyer, has turned him out of his room, and he now persists in haunting the building generally, sitting upon the banisters of the stairs by day and sleeping in the entry by night. Everybody is concerned. Clients are leaving the offices. Some fears are entertained of a mob. Something you must do, and that without delay. Aghast at this torrent, I fell back before it, and would fain have locked myself in my new quarters. In vain I persisted that Bartleby was nothing to me, no more than to anyone else. In vain. I was the last person known to have anything to do with him, and they held me to the terrible account. Fearful then of being exposed in the papers, as one person present obscurely threatened, I considered the matter, and at length said that if the lawyer would give me a confidential interview with the scrivener, in his, the lawyer's own room, I would that afternoon strive my best to rid them of the nuisance they complained of going upstairs to my old haunt, there was Bartleby silently sitting upon the banister at the landing. "'What are you doing here, Bartleby?' said I. "'Sitting upon the banister,' he mildly replied. I motioned him into the lawyer's room, who then left us. "'Bartleby,' said I, "'are you aware that you are the cause of great tribulation to me by persisting in occupying the entry after being dismissed from the office?' "'No answer.' Now one of two things must take place. Either you must do something, or something must be done to you. Now what sort of business would you like to engage in? Would you like to re-engage in copying for someone? No, I would prefer not to make any change. Would you like a clerkship in a dry goods store? There is too much confinement about that. No, I would not like a clerkship, but I am not particular. Too much confinement? I cried. Why do you keep yourself confined all the time? I would prefer not to take a clerkship, he rejoined, as if to settle that little item at once. How would a bartender's business suit you? There is no trying of the eyesight in that. I would not like it at all, though, as I said before, I am not particular. His unwanted wordiness inspirited me. I returned to the charge. Well then, would you like to travel through the country collecting bills for the merchants? That would improve your health. No, I would prefer to be doing something else. How then would going as a companion to Europe, to entertain some young gentleman with your conversation, how would that suit you? Not at all. It does not strike me that there's anything definite about that. I like to be stationary, but I am not particular. Stationary you shall be then, I cried, now losing all patience, and for the first time in all my exasperating connection with him fairly flying into a passion. If you do not go away from these premises before night, I shall feel bound, indeed I am bound, to, to, to quit the premises myself. I rather absurdly concluded, knowing not with what possible threat to try to frighten his immobility into compliance. Despairing of all further efforts, I was precipitately leaving him when a final thought occurred to me, one which had not been wholly indulged before. Bartleby, said I in the kindest tone I could assume under such exciting circumstances. Will you go home with me now, not to my office, but my dwelling, and remain there till we can conclude upon some convenient arrangement for you at our leisure? Come, let us start now, right away. No, at present I would prefer not to make any change at all. 
I answered nothing, but effectually dodging everyone by the suddenness and rapidity of my flight, rushed from the building, ran up Wall Street towards Broadway, and jumping into the first omnibus was soon removed from pursuit. As soon as tranquility returned, I distinctly perceived that I had now done all that I possibly could, both in respect to the demands of the landlord and his tenants, and with regard to my own desire and sense of duty to benefit Bartleby and shield him from rude persecution. I now strove to be entirely carefree and quiescent, and my conscience justified me in the attempt, though indeed it was not so successful as I could have wished. So fearful was I of being again hunted out by the incensed landlord and his exasperated tenants that, surrendering my business to nippers, for a few days I drove about the upper part of the town and through the suburbs, in my rockaway, crossed over to Jersey City and Hoboken, and paid fugitive visits to Manhattanville and Astoria. In fact, I almost lived in my rockaway for the time. When again I entered my office, lo, a note from the landlord lay upon the desk. I opened it with trembling hands. It informed me that the writer had sent to the police, and had Bartleby removed to the tombs as a vagrant. Moreover, since I knew more about him than anyone else, he wished me to appear at that place and make a suitable statement of the facts. These tidings had a conflicting effect upon me. At first I was indignant, but at last almost approved. The landlord's energetic, summary disposition had led him to adopt a procedure which I do not think I would have decided upon myself, and yet, as a last resort, under such peculiar circumstances, it seemed the only plan. As I afterwards learned, the poor scrivener, when told that he must be conducted to the tombs, offered not the slightest obstacle, but in his pale, unmoving way, silently acquiesced. Some of the compassionate and curious bystanders joined the party, and headed by one of the constables arm-in-arm with Bartleby, the silent procession filed its way through all the noise and heat and joy of the roaring thoroughfares at noon. The same day I received the note, I went to the tombs, or to speak more properly, the halls of justice. Seeking the right officer, I stated the purpose of my call, and was informed that the individual I described was indeed within. I then assured the functionary that Bartleby was a perfectly honest man, and greatly to be compassionated, however unaccountably eccentric. I narrated all I knew, and closed by suggesting the idea of letting him remain in as indulgent confinement as possible till something less harsh might be done, though indeed I hardly knew what. At all events, if nothing else could be decided upon, the almshouse must receive him. I then begged to have an interview. Being under no disgraceful charge, and quite serene and harmless in all his ways, they had permitted him freely to wander about the prison, and especially in the enclosed grass-plated yard thereof. And so I found him there, standing all alone in the quietest of the yards, his face towards a high wall, while all around from the narrow slits of the jail windows I thought I saw peering out upon him the eyes of murderers and thieves. Bartleby! I know you, he said without looking round. And I want nothing to say to you. It was not I that brought you here, Bartleby, said I, keenly pained at his implied suspicion. And to you, this should not be so vile a place. Nothing reproachful attaches to you by being here. And see, it is not so sad a place as one might think. Look, there is the sky, and here is the grass. I know where I am, he replied, but would say nothing more, and so I left him. As I entered the corridor again, a broad meat-like man in an apron accosted me, and jerking his thumb over his shoulder, said, 
Is that your friend? Yes. Does he want to starve? If he does, let him live on the prison fare, that's all. Who are you? Asked I, not knowing what to make of such an unofficially speaking person in such a place. I'm the grub man. Such gentlemen as have friends here hire me to provide them with something good to eat. Is this so? Said I, turning to the turnkey. He said it was. Well then, said I, slipping some silver into the grub man's hands, for so they called him. I want you to give particular attention to my friend there. Let him have the best dinner you can get, and you must be as polite to him as possible. Introduce me, will you? Said the grub man, looking at me with an expression which seemed to say he was all impatience for an opportunity to give a specimen of his breeding. Thinking it would prove of benefit to the scrivener, I acquiesced, and asking the grub man his name, went up with him to Bartleby. Bartleby, this is Mr. Cutlets. You will find him very useful to you. Your servant, sir, your servant, said the grub man, making a low salutation behind his apron. Hope you find it pleasant here, sir. Spacious grounds, cool apartments, sir. Hope you'll stay with us some time. Try to make it agreeable. May Mrs. Cutlets and I have the pleasure of your company to dinner, sir, in Mrs. Cutlets' private room? I prefer not to dine today, said Bartleby, turning away. It would disagree with me. I am unused to dinners. So saying, he slowly moved to the other side of the enclosure and took up a position fronting the dead wall. How's this? said the grub man, addressing me with a stare of astonishment. He's odd, ain't he? I think he is a little deranged, said I, sadly. Deranged? Deranged, is it? (laughs) Well now, upon my word, I thought that friend of yourn was a gentleman forger. They are always pale and genteel like them forgers. I can't pity him. Can't help it, sir. Did you know Monroe Edwards? He added touchingly and paused, then laying his hand pityingly on my shoulder, sighed. He died of consumption at Sing Sing. So you weren't acquainted with Monroe? No, I was never socially acquainted with any forgers, but I cannot stop longer. Look to my friend yonder. You will not lose by it. I will see you again. Some few days after this, I again obtained admission to the tombs, and went through the corridors in quest of Bartleby, but without finding him. I saw him coming from his cell not long ago, said a turnkey. Maybe he's gone to loiter in the yards. So I went in that direction. Are you looking for the silent man? Said another turnkey, passing me. Yonder he lies, sleeping in the yard there. Tis not twenty minutes since I saw him lie down. The yard was entirely quiet. It was not accessible to the common prisoners. The surrounding walls of amazing thickness kept off all sounds behind them. The Egyptian character of the masonry weighed upon me with its gloom. But a soft imprisoned turf grew underfoot. The heart of the eternal pyramids, it seemed, wherein, by some strange magic, through the clefts, grass seed dropped by birds had sprung. Strangely huddled at the base of the wall, his knees drawn up and lying on his side, his head touching the cold stones, I saw the wasted Bartleby but nothing stirred. I paused, then went close up to him, stooped over and saw that his dim eyes were open. Otherwise, he seemed profoundly sleeping. Something prompted me to touch him. I felt his hand when a tingling shiver ran up my arm and down my spine to my feet. The round face of the grub man peered upon me now. His dinner's ready. Won't he dine today either? Or does he live without dining? Lives without dining, said I, and closed his eyes. Eh, he's asleep, ain't he? With kings and counselors, murmured I.
There would seem little need for proceeding further in this history. Imagination will readily supply the meager recital of poor Bartleby's interment. But ere parting with the reader, let me say that if this little narrative has sufficiently interested him to awaken curiosity as to who Bartleby was and what manner of life he led prior to the present narrator's making his acquaintance, I can only reply that in such curiosity I fully share, but am wholly unable to gratify it. Yet here I hardly know whether I should indulge one little item of rumor which came to my ear a few months after the Scrivener's decease. Upon what basis it rested I could never ascertain, and hence how true it is I cannot now tell. But inasmuch as this vague report has not been without certain strange suggestive interest to me, however sad, it may prove the same with some others, and so I will briefly mention it. The report was this that Bartleby had been a subordinate clerk in the dead letter office at Washington, from which he had been suddenly removed by a change in the administration. When I think over this rumor, I cannot adequately express the emotions which seize me. Dead letters! Does it not sound like dead men? Conceive a man by nature and misfortune, prone to a pallid hopelessness. Can any business seem more fitted to heighten it than that of continually handling these dead letters and assorting them for the flames? for by the cartload they are annually burned. Sometimes from out the folded paper the pale clerk takes a ring, the finger it was meant for, perhaps, molders in the grave, a banknote sent in swiftest charity. He whom it would relieve, nor eats nor hungers any more. Pardon for those who died despairing, hope for those who died unhoping, good tidings for those who died stifled by unrelieved calamities. On errands of life, these letters speed to death. Ah, Bartleby. Ah, humanity. So, first of all, Calvin, excellent work uh, reading that story there. I guess, what did you take away as like reading as the narrator of this story? What what did you learn from embodying this character? Who is this character and what can you tell, tell us about him? Yeah, I mean, it's there's a lot going on. And first of all, let me just say, great job reading the, the other parts as well. Um, I think you, you had an impressive array of like half British, half uh, <laughs> uh, rural American accents, which I appreciated. But no, I, I mean, I think like at a sort of political sociological level, it's hard not to read the narrator as kind of a harried devotee to institutions and, and, and to kind of tradition who is being confronted by an alien and alienating uh, changing world. And and so I, I kind of read it that way, that like that is that is really the absurdist comedy of this story is that this narrator goes to such great lengths to try to maintain his own sanity and the sanity of his institution of like this this law clerk office. And 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 he's just he's fighting a losing battle. Um, so, so I think on a political sociological level, that's how I see it as kind of like institutional power and traditionalism versus the dynamism of, of change and, and like changing conditions. 
Yeah, no, I think that, I mean, that point is really well taken in not only the title itself, right? Like they're the subtitle rather is it's Bartleby the Scrivener, a story of Wall Street and yes. uh, written at a time when, when Wall Street is kind of emerging as this institutional powerhouse that governs and regulates so much of American life. No, I think it makes sense that Melville is following around these bureaucratic functionaries uh, performing duties that are not really specified in any great detail. I mean, we glossed over quite a few of the sort of basic descriptions of who these characters are, uh, kind of the more uh, background characters and things. But I think the the institutional work that they are left to perform is intentionally abstract or intentionally not really talked about because it's not really it's a probably not really that important to the story itself but b it's also supposed to be this sort of like vague overture to like the employees themselves really have no concept for what they're doing other than just looking over paperwork doing copywriting uh yes. and things that are keeping the machine humming along yes and and i i think the the final kind of uh, denouement or coda about, you know, this, this rumor that what basically, you know, drove Bartleby batty was uh, working in a government office, basically destroying old paperwork. It kind of attests to the, the fact that like the weight of an institution can become so heavy and kind of like stultifying that it can't not produce perverse and kind of like horrifying effects like that, that, and I, I think about this to some extent as relevant to like whistleblowing, like how, how kind of like, uh, people who are functionaries within these institutions might one day just kind of suddenly hit a break where the, the weight of the bureaucratic work become so much that they can't bear it anymore. So we could see Bartleby as kind of a a proto Chelsea Manning or Edward oh, Snowden. Interesting. Um, or, you know, in a more banal way, you know, a proto office space <laughs> employee. Yeah. You know, just someone in a an extremely boring institution who just kind of is fed up and has enough with it. And I think that's a very romantic character uh that 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 americans are inherently drawn to but it but it also i mean like you know i don't think america is the only point of reference here because i think that like the literature of franz kafka and and albert camus kind of like uh resonates a lot with this like i've i've, I've never really thought of melville as in conversation with those authors but i i think there is a kafka-esque absurdism uh, to this story that's just inherently funny. It feels like it 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 presages a lot of like absurdist surrealist literature as well in that regard. Absolutely. I mean, and just to kind of tack on to your point about the, the coda at the end, I mean, it's not just any paperwork that's being destroyed here. For our listeners that don't know, the reference to the dead letter office is literally, it's, a, it's at least at this point in history, it was a function of the postal service that had to deal with the letters that were sent to deceased people uh, that they could never receive. So he was in charge of basically going through compiling and then destroying all of these 
sentimental letters to people that would never read them, right? There mm-hmm. is something that's sort of existentially terrifying about the existence of such a thing as the dead yeah. letter office. What an invasion of those people's privacy. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. And and I think that there is there is that that itself is a commentary on the sort of like morbidity of these bureaucratic systems <laughs> of the ways in which they just make banal uh, things that are really, truly like devastating, right? Like emotionally heartrending things like, you know, somebody's loved one is never going to read this letter that they, you know, put so much time and effort into. And yeah, that being used as kind of the uh, excuse, as it were, for Bartleby's uh, condition is, I mean, I think we can read it one of two ways, right? Like that that is the sort of breaking point of somebody who was at any other point, you know, maybe just a morose character. But I think that we can also, you know, read it as being analogous to the kind of work that he was doing or that the kind of work that all of us are doing uh, that, you know, maybe the narrator is only slowly starting to realize towards the very end, right? That like, you know, he picked this job uh, after the dead letter office. <laughs> this was his this was his rebound from the dead letter office. And he couldn't even yes. do this job for a couple of weeks. Like, what does that say about the Wall Street work? That's even more deadening and horrifying than working in something like a dead letter office. Right. No, absolutely. I mean, I think the the political implications of it are really profound. And I, and I think that to kind of call back to our conversation with Kendall, this idea of refusal and rhetorics of refusal that people reach a breaking point and, and, and simply refusing without any next sort of step, where do you go from after the point of refusal? It, it, you know, it's, it's very appealing in a totalizing society and economy that that presents few ways out or, or, or presents very little agency on an individual level, that is a kind of adoption of agency, like to simply refuse. And there, there's something very, uh, like, it's certainly not liberating, but it's definitely emotionally and affectively energizing to, to simply say no. But yeah, you know, the profound irony of the story is that it leads to his death. I mean, it consumes him. And so that's another potential political implication of this is like, what does it do to movements or or even like political currents when they when they become solely committed to refusal, you know, in, in our contemporary situation, like maybe you're refusing Trumpism or you're ref, you're refusing if you're refusing the Republicans, like, okay, then what is your alternative? Right. Absolutely. Um, And I, I I think that's, but, but yeah, I mean, we, we could see it at a higher ontological level as well that like there's, there's something very abstract in this story too, just about negation that like negation is inherently incomplete. Right. And it, and that it, that it promotes or fosters a, a, an ontological, incompleteness or or lack of resolution that is destructive, right? 
just to kind of put this in conversation with some of the other contemporaneous literature, I mean, it's important to note that this story was published only a few years after uh, Henry David Thoreau's civil disobedience essay uh, that was in some ways kind of articulating the kind of passive resistance that we see in a Bartleby character. Like that was one of his kind of tenets of how to do civil disobedience is just throwing a gear into the machinations of the system. So these thoughts were not uh, were not certainly in isolation. But I think what's also, and this also, you know, could be said as a critique of Thoreau's essay and making connections to a more contemporary things like the labor movement, right, where a mass refusal to work uh, functions as this mode of solidarity and wielding power, whereas Bartleby's individualized resistance, the I would prefer not to, only results in, you know, just this kind of like I mean, it, it it functions in a way that renders the system absurd to other observers, other people who are trying to get work done within it. But at the end, you know, Bartleby still dies in uh, in squalor, and it's important to note that you know the system just keeps chugging on. So it's it's important, I think, not to valorize the kind of Bartleby Bartlebyan uh, <laughs> civil disobedience, uh, but to think about you know what does this kind of resistance do, and what do other kinds of resistances do better. Like Bartleby needed a union. (laughs) Bartleby needed some kind of collective organization. It's a really important uh, implication and reflection of this. Like you can be a pain in the ass. You can refuse to do things. And and often you should um, as an individual. But it has so much more power when you can do it uh, in community with other people. Um, yes. And moreover, like not just refusing, but also building, talking about what we do after we refuse or what do we do instead, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so so that's really important as well. But it's just, I mean, I, I think like the higher order kind of profundity of this story is just that he, he seems to be like a, almost like a linguistic automaton, Ooh. right? The, 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 there's just this negation that that cannot it makes me think about like work in sociolinguistics on like adjacency pairs yeah that you know there is an expectation of you know a typical dialogic response that bartleby is just committed to violating yes he's 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 a linguistic algorithm that only says no um (laughs) and and when you encounter that kind of like norm defying you know, machinic negation, like it's, it's profoundly unsettling. And so Mm -hmm. it certainly makes me worry about like, algorithmic discourses and and machine learning driven, like bots on the internet and stuff like that. Uh, It makes me think about that stuff as well. I, I got a call or I made a call to a, a Verizon once to try and cancel my Fios service. Uh, and, uh, or I guess, no, the better analog would be, I went to their website uh, to try and cancel my uh, internet service and uh, was met with a computer continually telling me, I would prefer not to uh, cancel your service online. I would prefer you to call our retention department so that we can make you a better offer. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> exactly. I mean, I feel like that kind of thing has happened when I try to like cancel email subscriptions too oh where God. like like you get offered other shit to subscribe to like it's i mean there is really something and that's where like bartleby on the one hand it can be this figure of of certainly if not liberation at least like placation just yeah. this sort of placating to say no 
but the 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 algorithmic the way in which he's like an automaton is kind of scary and creepy in its own way absolutely um and uh yeah and it, it reminds me of a lot of the worst uh the worst effects of capitalism uh at least in its current form yeah which is that... certainly way 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 different than the turn of the 20th century when this was written absolutely um, but it does show you know yeah i mean i think if history is borne it out that mode of critique or that mode of resistance can be reappropriated back into capitalism right for sure for sure so we need we need a broader one but i did want to mention here that uh yeah ben williams would have joined us here for this little reflective <laughs> conversation but when we invited him to do so we were met with the response i would prefer not to and so and so here we are it's just me it and only Alex. it only feels fitting uh yeah, that's it only feels fitting. <laughs> he went uh, into a deep a deep uh, hole of method acting for this role so uh so we hope you enjoyed his performance as well yeah you will never hear him on another reverb <laughs> episode no, i'm just kidding he prefers not to record with us anymore <laughs> so yes. uh but yeah this was a lot of fun absolutely thank you all for joining us today uh from all of us here at reverb hope that you are doing well and we will talk to you again soon. I would prefer not to. Our show today was produced by Alex Helberg, Ben Williams, and Calvin Pollock. With editing work by Alex and Calvin and Calvin. Reverb's co-producers at large are Sophie Wadzak and Mike Laudenbach. You can subscribe to Reverb and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Android, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I would prefer... Check out our website at www.reverbcast.com. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at ReverbCast. That's R-E-V-E-R-B underscore C-A-S-T. If you've enjoyed our show and want to help amplify more of our public scholarship work, please consider leaving us a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice and tell a friend about us. We sincerely appreciate the support of our listeners. Thanks so much for tuning in. I would prefer not. I would prefer not.